Okay, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, and as you're making your way there, kind of already prayed one of those verses, but uh, prophecy, interesting thing about prophecy. Two verses uh, for us to kind of just get us going um, about prophecy, and they both come from the Old Testament, but... Um, It's Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How so, Lord? Well, he goes on to say, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Well, what's the Lord's pleasure? Well, open the Bible. Let's read it, and you'll find out the pleasure of the Lord. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. Um, another um, verse I think is interesting for us to consider is found in um, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless, what? He reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God has revealed his secrets to the prophets who in turn have written those things down that we might know. And um, so we have this incredible privilege of uh, prophecy. Uh, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. It's a book that's declaring things that are yet to come. The Lord has declared the end from the beginning. He's telling us ahead of time of what's going to take place. Because he doesn't do anything unless he first reveals his secrets to the prophets. So prophet John has the secrets of heaven revealed to him. Is it everything? It's not everything. But it's everything that the Lord wants us to know. It's everything that he believes is important for us to know has been revealed. And that ought to cause us all to want to kind of move up to the edge of our seats, kind of listen in and say, what's the secret again? What is it that you're going to do? Uh, it is no small thing in the heart of God, that he has declared to us what he's going to do. He wants us to know it, and he wants us to live um, in, the re, uh, in the reality and the impact of that. And that's why we find so often uh, this statement uh, concerning prophecy is know and what? What's the other word that goes with it? Know and what? Understand. Know and understand. This is the heart of the Lord, is that we would know and understand his prophecy. So we're, as we move into Revelation chapter 12, the title of tonight's study is War in Heaven and Terror on Earth. Did you know there's another war coming? Like, yeah, the Battle of Armageddon. Yeah, that's coming. But that's not what chapter 12 is about. Did you know that there's a war that's coming that's not going to be fought on planet Earth? Did you know that a war is coming that will not have any humans involved with it? And that's what we learned in Revelation. It's kind of like, okay, well, I'm, now I'm interested in Revelation chapter 12. But it's interesting to think about it in terms like that. Is that there is a war that is coming. It's not going to be fought on planet Earth. And it's not going to be fought by mankind. And it is a war that we're about to, to read about. Um, last week, we looked at how we were introduced to the seventh trumpet in chapter 11. But really, we won't see the details of that judgment, that third woe, until chapters 15 through 18. Uh, the seventh trumpet will climax with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And of course, this is what heaven was rejoicing over last week as we read that the kingdom of God has come. 
They just were so excited to think, finally. And although it has not yet happened there in chapter 11, just the thought that chapter the seventh trumpet is about to sound, which will include the second coming of Christ, was enough to cause heaven to just explode with celebration. As we look at chapter 12, there are five uh, players that I want, we're going to be introduced to. We're going to be introduced to the woman who is representing Israel, and we'll take a look at that. The dragon who represents Satan. The man-child referring to Jesus. Michael, the chief angel of heaven. I guess you could say he's a CAO or something like that. I don't know. But you have Michael, and then you have the offspring of the woman. That will come at the very end of this chapter, who I believe is representing Gentiles who come to faith during the tribulation time. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 with the sign of the woman. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So who is this woman? Um, uh, well, Mary Baker Eddy thought it was herself. Um, that's not true. That's not true. Um, many would say, uh, certainly the Catholic Church says this is uh, the Virgin Mary. Others would say it's the church. And I would say none of these are accurate. Uh, Mary is already in heaven. And as we're going to see, um, the things that are talked about do not apply to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, it's not the church. Um, and we'll make a comment or two as we go. But the church is always called um, the bride of Christ, not the wife of Christ. And she's always referred to as a virgin, and we never see her pregnant. So, um, you know, the, the, these are some things I think are important for us to keep in mind. So who is this? Well, again, in the book of Revelation, it's like the crescendo of all prophecy. And if you really want to be able to dig into this, the best way to do it is to, is to allow the Bible to comment on itself. And so to a Jew who would have read this and would have heard this, and there certainly were many, of the, uh, many Jews in the seven churches that we uh, read earlier in chapters 2 and 3, a part of the church, um, as they read this, their mind would have gone somewhere else. They would have gone, no doubt, to Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. And let me read these verses to you. Actually, I would encourage you to write it down um, next to verse 1. Genesis 37, 9 through 11. Then he dreamed Joseph, all right, dreamed still another dream, and told it to his brothers. Remember this? This is that dream that got him in so much trouble. And said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Him presumably being the 12th star, right? So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I, your brothers indeed, come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so you see the, the sun, you see the moon, you see the stars, and it's representing the nation of Israel. The book of Revelation is the 70th week explained. 
the 70th week, that last week of prophecy that Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9, which is determined for the holy people and the holy city, which is Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. So it would make sense that, that Israel would have a prominent place. And here's a clear description of um, an Old Testament prophecy, or Old Testament you know, dream that Joseph had that is identifying um, the tribes of Israel and um, Israel herself. So it would seem, and most, um, no, I don't want to say most, but many would agree that this is a, a reference to Israel. And he, he sees that this woman um, is ready to give birth. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why many people say, well, this is Mary. Well, certainly in one sense, this would also include her as part of the nation of Israel. And she certainly did give birth to Jesus. Um, but it is more of a reference to the nation. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Eve and Adam and Eve were given the promise that the seed of the woman, right, would crush the head of, uh, of Satan. Abraham was promised that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. There's all these references to the child that's going to come. There's also uh, David, who was promised that a descendant, a child, would come from him and from his lineage who would rule forever. And we could go on and on with the long list of examples where the prophecy of a child coming and growing up uh, was well in the mind and in the heart of the nation of Israel. Moving on, verses 3 and 4, we see the sign of the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Um, or, or, or there, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was to be born. So we have the sign of the dragon. Now, this one's there's really no debate because if you just move down to verse 12, uh, actually, in verse 9 of chapter 12, we read, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. So th that's helpful, right? When you have a, a verse like that that just is so clear and pointing it out. Um, this, uh, so we have the identity. He has seven heads, ten horns. Uh, seven diadems. We'll, we'll talk more about this later, but it's just talking about um, you know, the influence that Satan has had over rulers. Um, and, and we'll see this as we get into the Antichrist. We'll talk more about that. But verse 4, um, we see that he, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Um, so, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. So the, the question here is, you know, what's going on? Well, and it's not conclusive, but passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. These are two passages, and um, the references will be up there for you in just a moment. But these passages are passages that are speaking about the king of Tyre, and they are also speaking about um, um, the Babylonian king. And how these are rulers that are going to come, and they are going to fall, and, and, and all the rest. Um, but as you read these accounts, it's sad, it, it, there's, there's much more going on with these men 
than simply being a man. And as you read about this, there are things that are attributed, things that are talked about with them that give us the distinct impression that this, although applies to them, could also refer to someone else, namely um, Satan, the devil. And this was pretty much not, you know, uh, totally, but it, it was the common interpretation in the early church that Isaiah and Ezekiel were references to Satan. So it is a point that is debated. I'll let you go search them out. But taking that as an approach, Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. So this is, again, um, an interesting passage that talks about Satan falling. Um, in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15, reference to Tyre. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You see, you're reading this like, wow, this sounds, that, that's, that's some high praise coming for just a king of an ungodly nation. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And so then Satan rebelled against the Lord. And he drew with him a third of the angels. Um, back to Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So there's this kind of arrogance and pride that is referred to. And so... Satan was cast out. He was, you know, was removed um, from heaven as, listen to my words, as a place in which was his abode. But he still had access. He still had access. Job 1, 6 and 7 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? So Satan answered, the Lord answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So Satan has this opportunity to come and we'll find out why he has access to heaven in just a moment. And it's going to be when he's kicked out of heaven permanently, it's going to be another cause for heaven to rejoice. So Satan, um, verse 4, seeks to destroy the male child. And, and this is something that has been going on since the very beginning. And you can chart this. Abel seeks to kill um, Seth, who God raised up. Pharaoh has all the male children in Israel killed. Saul tries uh, to uh, kill David. Satan is a descendant. I mean, <laughs> Satan. Jesus is a descendant of David. And Saul... It, you know, is being used by Satan to try and destroy him. Haman seeks to kill all the Jews. Herod has all the young male children put to death. There's a long history in Scripture of this trying to be accomplished, and that is that to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
And of course, Herod is the one that really stands out in our mind. But that, it didn't stop just in, the, in recorded scripture. This has always been the heart of Satan, is to destroy the Jewish people. He sought to destroy them before the first coming of Jesus, because it was a prophecy, and he seeks to destroy the nation of Israel still to this day and down through the ages because they are God's chosen people and because the Lord has promised to come back a second time and establish the kingdom. So there's not much different in one sense. Jesus has said he's going to come. Satan's trying to stop it. He tried to stop it through uh, a birth that would come. And um, so we read those, but it still goes on. Um, and down through history, um, a thousand years ago in England, Jews were banished from the borders of the country. In 1350, Jews were blamed for the Black Plague. Did you know that? They were blamed for the Black Plague, and half of the Jews in Europe were killed. Spanish Inquisitions killed many Jews, and nobody really knows. Hitler killed six million Jews. <laughs> many Muslim nations today want to drive Israel into the sea. There is an anti-Semitism, and even... If you've paid any attention to your news, you see that even in our own country, there seems to be a rise of this. How do you make sense of that? They're God's chosen people. God has promised, Jesus himself promised that he's coming back to set up a kingdom. And Satan is seeking to stop it, just like he sought to stop the birth of of Jesus through all of these other events. In verse 5, it says, She bore a male child, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So, I mean, it's really clear that this is, that we're referring to, to Jesus, the son who's going to rule. And in this verse 5, again, we find a, a reference to uh, an Old Testament passage, Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9, which is a messianic psalm talking about the rule and the reign of the, the coming one, Jesus. We read there in verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Listen to this. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And this, so the, the, the prophet John is making reference to this. And so, The kingdom of God is in mind. Satan tries to stop him. It doesn't work. He stops. But in verse 5, her child was caught up to heaven. We think about Jesus ascending to heaven, right? Um, And yet he's going to come and he's going to rule over the nations and they will be his. Verse 6, though. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. Hopefully that number is becoming familiar to you. That's half of the tribulation. That's half of Daniel's 70th week. That's three and a half years. It's 42 months, right? Many different ways in which that time frame period is referenced. So John now takes us back out to the tribulation in verse 6 to the midpoint where the Antichrist reveals himself and demands to be worshipped He's just killed the two witnesses and say, I'm better than them, now worship me. And this persecution begins, and so they are on the run. Um, you might want to, again, uh, read of, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, it tells us that the Antichrist will break the treaty 
midway through, and that's when the persecution and the abomination takes place. Now here is this war in heaven, verses 7 through 9. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. So we already read that he was kicked out, and he drew with him a third of the angels with him. But now here's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was place found for them in heaven any longer. Remember what we read in Job? How in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Satan came and appeared before God? So the Old Testament talks about that. But so does the New Testament. We read right here that there was a place. It was no longer his abode. He no longer got to dwell in the presence of the Lord. But he has had, and we see this um, in the book of Job, clearly access to do what? To accuse the brethren. And so, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is the last place you expect to hear about a war. But it's going on. And it would seem, this is happening right at the midpoint of the tribulation, which if, you know, what we believe and what we teach here is that we are in heaven um, with the Lord at the, before the beginning of the tribulation. We're going to have a view of what's happening here. What a war this is going to be. It's obviously it's a spiritual beings that are, that are going back and forth. It's the last place that you'd expect to read about a war going on. Michael, the chief angel of heaven, is the one who you know, fights with Satan. This is not the first time. We see you know, this kind of uh, encounter and this kind of fight. They, they disputed over the body of Moses. And um, you know, Prince of Persia was fighting um, the word, the answer of the prophecy to come back to, to Daniel, the petition. And so then Michael gets involved. So we see Michael often getting involved in conflicts in the spiritual realm. There, the Bible records four different judgments against Satan. And um, here they are. It's Ezekiel 28, verses 14 through 16. We already read that. But that's that initial rebellion to usurp God and to um, exalt his throne above the throne of God. Why in the world would he want to do that? We aren't told, other than his heart was filled with pride. But my best guess, and it's only that, my best guess is when he saw that God created man to be a special object of his love and devotion, jealousy entered his heart. And he says, no, bad idea. And, and, and since then has been trying to deceive the nations to show God you had a bad idea. And so, um, but we're not told. The second uh, judgment that we see, we just read here in Revelation chapter 12, um, Satan no longer will have access to the throne room of God to accuse the brethren like he did with Job, like he does with you. Um, then we're going to see him um, bound for a thousand years at the end of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 20, another judgment upon him. Um, he will be released. He will deceive the nations again for those that have been born during the, the millennial kingdom. And then in Revelation 20 again, 
we read about him being thrown into the lake of fire forever. And nobody will ever have to deal with him again. It's interesting, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus speaks of how he saw Satan fall. And the question is, is he thinking, is he looking into the future when he says, I saw Satan fall? Or is he looking back on uh, that Ezekiel 28 before the creation of man? Is that what he's referring to? Or maybe is it both? Or is it all four? I, in him just saying, I know what his end is. I know what his future is. In verse 10, as Satan and his angels are cast out and they have no more access to heaven, look at what happens. There's a victory celebration that takes place in heaven. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren, the slanderer, the devil. That's what devil means. The slanderer, the devil um, has, has been kicked out, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So what is Satan doing? He's in heaven. And he's bringing accusation against you. He's bringing accusation against me. He's looking for those opportunities, just like he did with Job. You know, yeah, oh, oh yeah, so they're, they're blessing the Lord. Well, of course they're blessing you because you just gave them this you know, great new job and this great new house. You've blessed them with children and, or you have all these blessings. around. Let me just bring a few trials into their life and let's see what happens. Let's see if they're still praising you. This is exactly what happened with Job. Maybe he, as he observes our, um, our failures, he comes before the Lord and saying, you have redeemed these people. They don't love you. They don't care. Look, this person does not love you. There's an accusation, a slander that is coming against us day and night. We read it right there. Day and night he is doing this. But the good news is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through Chapter 2, verse 2. Please turn with me over there. Just a few pages back, really, from where you are in Revelation. 1 John 1, 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. This will give you some encouragement. He's accusing in the throne room of God. And if you go into the, if the, you know, the, the courtroom of, of, of the Lord, if you go to court, most times it's good to have an advocate, Right? Well, we have an advocate. We, we know there's a, a prosecuting attorney called the devil before the judge of the world. But who's representing us? 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have, what is that word? An advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And here it is. Look at this. He himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The Lord is the one who stands to cover us. He is the covering. There is a covering over the law and the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And there is a covering 
over you and the laws and our sin and our failure, my sin, my failure. And it's Jesus. He is the mercy seat, if you will. He is a propitiation. He is that covering for our sins. And so we stand in the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so, yeah, this is, this is a scene that's going on in heaven. I mean, we don't think about these things much, do we? But it's happening right now, day and night, 24-7. No vacations, no holidays. Satan is there with his horde, and they are bringing accusation. But the day is coming, and that's going to happen, in, as we just read here in Revelation chapter 12. The time is going to come when Michael says, you're gone. And so... If we're to feel, if we're believing we're following this chronologically, after the abomination of desolation, after the killing of the two witnesses, the Lord's like, you're gone. You're out of here. No more. And, um, and, and, and so that's the, the victory celebration that they're, they're celebrating. No more accusation. No more um, saying, uh, you know, God, you made a huge mistake. In verse 11, we read, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. These are the believers. These are the ones that are going to have to now deal with the terror on earth. Those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, as Satan is kicked out, and we're going to read this here in just a moment. He knows his time is short. And so now he sets his eyes on them and he's coming to destroy them. But they're going to overcome. And how do they overcome? How do believers overcome? Well, by the blood of the Lamb. That's how they overcome. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love and whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Much the same in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Uh, chapter 1 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How do we overcome the accusation of Satan? How do we find ourselves victorious? How does any believer find themselves? There's only one way. It's by coming to Jesus Christ and it's coming to his atoning work on the cross. There's no other way. This is the only way you can find forgiveness of sin. This is the only way that you can be redeemed. The blood of Jesus satisfies the righteous judgment of God against our sin. That's it. Your good cannot outweigh your bad. And even if you live a mostly good life, you still have to deal with the part of your life that was not good and was in rebellion against the Lord. And what Scripture says is the soul that sins will surely what? Surely die. And if you break one part of the law, you break the whole thing. This is what Scripture teaches us. So we need an advocate. We need a redeemer. We need to be covered. And that covering is found in the blood of Jesus. 
John Walvoord, writing on this verse, says, The accusations of Satan are nullified by the blood of the Lamb, which renders the believer pure and makes possible his spiritual victory. And so we must keep the cross at the center of our thinking and our understanding. But it also says, by the word of our testimony. We read earlier that Satan is out to deceive mankind, and he works tirelessly to deceive and to blind and to keep people angry towards the Lord. And, it, you know, whether it's false doctrine, uh, a, uh, an incomplete message that leads people away from the Lord, an ineffective church that no longer clings to the Word of God, he doesn't care what he does, just as long as it results in man being blind. But besides the blood of the Lamb, the other way in which the Lord seeks to combat that is through you. And it's through me. It's through our testimony. What's our testimony? I was blind and now I see. I was condemned and now I've been set free. I was a sinner and now I'm righteous. And you can be too. And so people see our testimony and they also hear our testimony. And it's got to be both. They, they got to hear us proclaim Jesus Christ and they need to see us live out our faith in Jesus Christ. And both of these together provide that opportunity for us to combat the work of Satan. So the Lord wants our testimony to be declared. This is what's going on in the, in, at the end of the days, in the great tribulation, after Satan is kicked out of heaven. The last three and a half years, they are overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. They're overcoming by the word of their testimony. So what does that overcoming actually look like? Well, let's keep on reading because there in chapter 12, verse 11, we also read, and they did not love their lives to the death. So overcome does not mean, like with 144,000, that no harm could come to them. It does not mean, like for the two witnesses, that no harm could come to them. For these, these are, you know, outside of the 144,000, any believer, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus during the tribulation will be attacked by Satan. He will no longer have any resources in heaven it is a full frontal attack with all resources on planet Earth because they don't have access to heaven anymore. And, and so there's going to be many that are being put to death. We've already kind of read about this in some of the previous chapters in the book of Revelation. But it, they overcame by their selfless commitment to follow the Lord. They did not love their lives, right? To, to the death. They weren't willing to um, take the easy road and escape death. Just take the mark of the beast. Well, what's a mark? Well, in this day, the mark of the beast, as we're going to read, is pledging your allegiance to the Antichrist and Satan. It's becoming a worshiper. It's, if you will, it's the, um, you know, the Antichrist tribulation <laughs> um, uh, marker. In the tribulation, these are mine. These are the ones. It's like our baptism, but it's going to be a mark. And so you, there's going to be this. And people are going to have to make a choice. They're making an active daily choice in the last days. I'm going to follow the Lord. And I'm not going to love my life to the end. Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. Jesus gave this exhortation to us. 
He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. So this is what the Lord has called us to. He's called us to this kind of um, selfless living, not loving our lives to the end. Um, the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul walked this out. And in verse, uh, beginning at verse 21 of chapter 20, um, we read, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And then his response, Acts 20, verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and my ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that is a commission that every single one of us have been given, is to testify, to share our testimony. And as we seek to share our testimony, there will be things in this life that will seek to make it hard because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, listen, look where we're sitting. I mean, look at the comforts we have. Look at the protection we have. I doubt that any of you walked in here tonight afraid that tonight might be the night that you're hauled off to jail and you don't get to see your family anymore because you're coming to fulfill the word of the Lord, to gather together with believers, to worship him and study the word. I doubt that any of you had that concern. But there are plenty that have that concern around the world. Followers of Jesus Christ, they do have that concern. And so we live in a strange bubble as far as world, you know, the church history goes and what Jesus said. In America, we have such protection. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But, but it's not the Sudan. You know, it's, it's not Syria. It's not Iran. It's, it's, you know, we have such freedom here. And yet, we still have challenges. We still have things that, you know, hey, this world, you know, is under the sway of the wicked one and things could change like that. But, you know, we, we, we take hits in other ways. But the, the, the testimony of Paul and the testimony of these guys is don't love your life more than you love Jesus. Jesus is the first place. Family is not first. God is first. And we follow him with all of our heart. And, and if that troubles you at all, that's only because you don't understand how good it is for God to be first. And if we're all honest, we all have to learn that lesson every day about God being first, and we have to make that choice afresh. But don't let anything push you back. Jesus said, if you're going to love your family more than me, hey, I, this Christianity thing's just not for you. But he's even more harsh than that, isn't he? You're not worthy of me. 
God has sent his son to this earth, and Jesus is a great Savior who is worthy of every bit of strength, every resource, our last breath, our last drop of blood. And in the end, when Satan is kicked out of heaven and he comes with all of his fury, the Lord is strengthening the saints and they are standing strong. So, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. This is unlike any other time in the history of the world. He, he realizes, I, I, I'm almost out of time. I'm almost out of time. Speaking of time, what time is it? Because that is way too small for these 52-year-old. Hey, 16, all right, thank you. Um, I've got some time. He doesn't have time. I've got some time. But he's coming down with wrath. And, and if we can back up into, you know, verses 10 and 11, who is it that he's destroying? Well, Again, I told you, I think these are, are tribulation saints, not the church, because the church has been raptured. I say, no, 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 this is the church. The church is still here. I've got a problem with that. Because Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not. And what happens in the book of Revelation is that Satan overcomes the saints. Read it. We've already read it. You go look it up on your own, though. But in Revelation, it says that he overcomes the saints. Jesus said his church would not overcome. But saints are going to be overcome. But it's not the church of Jesus Christ. And if you, if you hold that view, I, then I think that's, a, that's a, a scripture verse you have to wrestle with. There certainly are scripture verses I have to wrestle with um, holding my position too. It's a two-way street. But that is one that you definitely have to wrestle with. But what a warning, Right? Woe to the inhabitants of, inhabitants of the earth and the sea. The devil has come down to you. But heaven, they're glad. That guy's gone. Don't have to see him coming and parading before the Lord and bringing... I, what must that look like in heaven right now to see that happening? I mean, with everything we know of heaven, that seems so out of place, doesn't it? And yet the scriptures are really clear. That is going on. But when he's gone, oh, there's a party. <laughs> there's a party and heaven is rejoicing. Verses 13 through 17, we see that although there's been this war on heaven, in heaven, now the terror comes to earth. Now the dragon, verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who's that? It's Israel. So it's very specific that it's Israel. The church did not give birth to the male child. If you will, the male child gave birth to the church. We're born again through him. But Israel and through uh, the, the ethnic people, they gave birth to him and Satan begins to persecute them. And this is no surprise. Um, it's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. It's all through the book of Revelation that this is taking place. 
This is why he can't be Mary, <laughs> right? I mean, where would Mary have to be if Mary's the woman? She has to be on planet Earth, but Mary's not on planet Earth. So um, it, that just doesn't make sense for it to be anyone other than. So Satan's going to come down. He's going to persecute um, them. And he, we read in Zechariah that two-thirds of the Jews will be put to death at this time, but one-third will remain. So as this is happening, in verses 14 and 15, we see that they, they flee to the wilderness. But the woman, Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished, and here it is, for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent, three and a half years. So the serpent spewed out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So is this a physical thing? If it is, we don't know. It seems metaphorical to represent just intense persecution, a flood of persecution. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So planet earth is going to, in some way, help um, Israel. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Okay, so he's going to change his attention. Um, it's not going to be Israel. Now it's going to be her offspring. Um, and again, I think this is just Gentiles that are coming to faith. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The whole earth is going to come. Everyone who has faith in Jesus, not just Israel. Um, in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, Jesus talked about these days. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee, right? Um, and, but let me pick up in um, verse, um, verse uh, 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And some say, well, you see, Jesus said flee to the mountains, but here they flee to the wilderness. Well, guess what's in the wilderness of Israel? Mountains, yeah. So, you know, the, the things that people like to point out as being contradictions. Well, there's mountains in the wilderness. So um, it's not in, an inconsistency whatsoever. So he says, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So he, he talks about this in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor forever. Why? Because Satan has his full focus on planet Earth. All resources, all assets, all little demon guys are making their attack on the Earth. And it's never happened like this before. Kind of spooky. Bride of Christ is not going to be there. I encourage you on your own, just write it down. Daniel chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Just read, go home tonight, read Daniel chapter 12, especially in light of those verses 14 through 17 that I, that I just read. But she's fleeing to the wilderness. We read that um, she's given uh, two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. This is just a, <laughs> this is just a, a, a metaphor that says the Lord allows her to escape quickly. It's not a plane, okay? It's not a plane. Could it be a plane? Sure, it could be a plane. But that's, that's not the idea here. Exodus 19.4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's just, it's just an expression to say, I got you out of the danger. 
And so the Lord is going to allow them to escape. And they're going to flee down into this wilderness, mountainous area that is going to provide some protection. And so whether it's something that happens miraculously at that moment where the earth shifts and changes and it provides a protection and a barrier, or whether it's something that's there right now, that is something that is, that is debated. Um, you know, some have suggested, and I, I certainly love the idea of talking about it and thinking about it, that people will flee, that this area where they're going to flee is down into um, ancient Moab and Ammon, down in the area of Petra, um, and they're going to flee into there. And there, there's, some, there's, a, there's some good evidence for this. Those of you that are going to Israel in just a couple of weeks, we're going to go there, and we'll be able to take a look at this, this place, and we'll look at these verses. But um, uh, it's... Isaiah 16, 1 through 4. It's Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 that you would want to look at and read. And you can kind of put the pieces together. But that is the place where um, it's suggested. And, there, and it's good for it's. I mean, it's, this is, there's good reason to think about it. We read about how um, in Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, which is right near this, this region, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury has sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. You know, I think it's very possible what we're going to see is when Jesus comes back at his second coming, his first stop is down south. Down in this area of, of Moab and Edom and Basra and Petra, down in this area where he you know, rescues Israel. And as he comes up from the south, he makes war all the way up into the north in, Arm, uh, in Armageddon. And then the climax of his coming is when he comes and sets his foot upon the Mount of Olives. And then he will make his way down um, into uh, the, the Kidron Valley, come on up into this, to the Temple Mount where the, he will come, where Israel that remains will be calling out to Jesus, not Messiah, question mark, question mark, question mark. They'll be calling out to Jesus, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When is he coming again? His second coming. When is that going to happen? When Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they call out in salvation to Jesus Christ to rescue them, which is at the very last hour. And so this is that wilderness area, I believe, that Jesus is going to come to. can't say it definitively, but there's plenty of scripture verses to read. And we could go into more, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 and 41, speaking of these last days and um, it tells us that this region, this area, escapes the fury of the Antichrist. 
And why is it that they escape the judgment? And maybe it's because of the protection they offer. Daniel 11, verses 40 through 41. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. So, you know, we can't be definitive about it, but there's a lot of really interesting things about this region that are happening in the last days. And so, um, hey, be a Berean. Go study it and look it up on your own. Well, as the Antichrist, we close there in um, chapter 12, as he makes his way down to earth, seeks to persecute Israel, um, she escapes into the wilderness and somehow is sustained miraculously by the Lord um, down in this uh, wilderness, mountainous region. Um, he then turns his wrath against all the rest of her offspring, all the rest who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I just think that's a reference to the rest of the world. And they're going to experience a time of wrath like never, ever, ever, so says Jesus before. Um, so, yeah, the Lord tells his servants, his friends, what's going to happen. He tells them the secrets ahead of time. And that's what you're doing. You are reading the secrets of heaven when you open the book of Revelation. And as you go through it. And, and, and he wants us to be students of this. He wants us to be aware of this. He wants us to know. He wants us to understand and I, and I pray that you'll take prophecies seriously because there's so much of the Bible that is prophetic to be fulfilled. But there, how much of the Bible is prophetic that has been fulfilled? And we rejoice over this. Man, you can trust the Bible. Yeah, you can. You can trust the Lord. You can trust his word because we can see all the fulfilled prophecy. But guess what? There's a lot of things that have yet to come. But he's told you. And I think it's so sad and it's so tragic that true brothers and sisters sometimes just despise prophecy. I, I, I don't get that. Because heaven has opened its book of secrets and said, here you go. I'm telling you because I love you and you're my servant. So may we study it. May we be gracious in how we deal with the different opinions that are surrounding it. But let's dig into it. And um, of course... What is true for that generation that they overcome with the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and selfless service in the kingdom of God is true for us tonight. Keep the cross centered. Let the word of your testimony, let it go forth to those that are around you. This is how we overcome the lies and the deception of the enemy. And don't love your life to the end. Don't count it dear. It's nothing it's nothing to hold on to. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. You're not your own. You've been bought with the price. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And, you know, it's interesting. Maybe if we keep the focus of the blood of the lamb more in the center of our mind, we'll realize who owns us and we won't love our lives to the end. 